0: To a vacation, to get away, be a tourist, relax and see the sights, maybe taste new foods. And lots of us share our travels on Facebook and Instagram. But the idea of just traveling for fun as a tourist is relatively new. From Virginia Humanities, this is with good reason. I'm Sarah McConnell. Today, the dawn of the tourist. Later in the show, air pollution at our national parks. But first, Will McIntosh is a professor of history at the University of Mary Washington. He's the author of a new book, Selling the Sites, the Invention of the Tourist in American Culture. Will, what first piqued your interest in the whole concept of early tourism in America?
1: When I was in high school, my summer job was working as a waiter on a dinner cruise boat in the Adirondacks that went around a lake that had a bunch of Gilded Age robber baron mansions on them. And I listened to the same narration four times a day (laughs) from the captain. It just got me really interested in the way people spent their leisure time in the 19th century.
0: In your book, you talk about the difference between the rise of tourists, the new notion of tourism, and what we'd had before, which were adventurers travelers.
1: Before the turn of the 19th century, the words tourist and traveler are actually used interchangeably. And it's really only in the 19th century that their meanings begin to diverge. And this is because there's a whole new infrastructure of transportation and of writing about travel that come about in the first decades of the 19th century. And tourists quickly becomes the label that gets applied to people who take advantage of those new
0: technologies. So what was the difference? What was the popular understanding of what a traveler was and what a tourist was as the dawn of the tourism industry began?
1: A tourist is someone who is fundamentally a consumer, They're buying a a train ticket instead of making their way on their own two feet or on their own horse or something like that. You really begin to see this phenomenon in the 1820s. And that's a product of the fact that by the 1820s, you can buy a ticket to get from one place to another. And that ticket may cover a range of, of steamboats, stagecoaches, railroads within the next couple of decades. And the idea is. It was easy, relatively speaking, to get from one place to another because you just went to a ticket booth, bought a piece of paper, and then somebody else moved you through space. As opposed to in the 18th century, you had to figure out where you had to go and how you had to get there. And that often involved a lot of improvisation as you went.
0: Travel was hard before tickets.
1: Yeah, so I I trace in the book two journeys undertaken by this man named William Richardson. Um, And at the beginning of the 19th century, he travels from Boston to New Orleans, down the East Coast, and ultimately over the Natchez Trace through what was then Mississippi Territory.
0: And it was a hideous experience.
1: Yeah, yeah. And he's constantly getting lost, and his horse is dying, and he has to fall in with strangers who promise to get him from one place to the other. Um, And he gets to New Orleans after months and months, and he's just exhausted and miserable and hopes to never do it again. Then in the 1840s, by this time, he's older. He's become very successful. He's living in Louisville, Kentucky. And he and his wife are prosperous enough that they can afford to take a trip to Europe. So they have to get from Louisville to New York. And they basically walk down to the wharves in Louisville. They buy a ticket, buys them a berth on a steamboat up to Wheeling, Virginia, gets them on a stagecoach over the mountains to Cumberland, Maryland, gets them on a train car down through Baltimore, up through Philadelphia, and ultimately to New York.
0: Now, I would think that was a tough journey. Yeah.
1: <laughs> By our standards, it absolutely was. But he perceives it as being the height of luxury because he doesn't have to do anything. He is, he is being transported. That seems exhausting to us who are used to just getting in a car and getting on the interstate. Right? But compared to literally wandering around in the dark in swamps in Mississippi territory at the dawn of the 19th century, right? this feels like uh, not only luxury but ease. You know, someone else is doing the work for him.
0: What had changed in those decades from when he had the awful journey when he was a kid?
1: Long-distance roads got better. Turnpike companies invested a lot of money in building long-distance roads. The invention of the steamboat, uh, which turned rivers all over the interior of North America into two-way highways for commerce and for people. So you had railroads, which could go almost anywhere, um, which relied on you know, coal and not animal power and weren't dependent on the seasons or the weather or anything like that. And these early railroads, you know, in the 1830s and the 1840s, they're not going very fast, usually. They're going 15 miles an hour often, which doesn't seem like much to us. But to them, they found this an absolute whirlwind. And you get all these people saying, how could you even see anything in a train car that's going so fast, that's going 15 (laughs) miles an hour? You know, you can't get any experience of the world around you. And so, Therefore, something about that way of traveling must be superficial. You're not actually getting a real experience of where you're traveling through. So then, you know, going on horseback or even taking a stagecoach becomes the true traveler way to go because you're somehow getting a more authentic experience of the landscape you're traveling through.
0: So was the culture at that time saying, wow, it's amazing to be a, a tourist. Look what you can do by buying a ticket and getting from whiz bang here to there. Or were people deriding it?
1: So it's a little bit of both. There are plenty of people who are buying tickets and are going to resort hotels where everything is all included and love it because it's easy and it's fun and it has its social pleasures. We have, a, I think, a cliche nowadays about going to Niagara Falls to get married. People were doing that in the 19th century and people were going to Niagara Falls and saying absolutely the most unoriginal things ever, looking at the falls, and they loved it and that was fine. But there's also a class of people often people who like to think of themselves as intellectuals or sort of culturally sophisticated, who increasingly began to look down at that. And they're the ones who I think really felt the sting of, of the satirist, pointing out to them that that kind of travel was superficial. And so they engage in a lot of strategies. If you read their letters and their diaries and that kind of thing, they are very busy trying to convince everybody that what they're doing is not silly, superficial tourism. It's something real. It's true travel.
0: And what sort of things would they write?
1: This is something where it really depended if you were a man or a woman. For men, they often would record what they thought of as scientific observations in their journals. So they, there's these 19th century travel diaries and letters that people wrote home are full of these atmospheric and meteorological observations, which. I can't imagine that they were of any real use to any actual scientists, but you know they helped people frame their trip as being for scientific purposes. They're full of geological observations, right? You know, there's lawyers and doctors traveling around imagining what the what mineral riches might lay underneath the land they're traveling <laughs> under, even though they have no qualifications to think about that. For women, the observations tended towards what we now might think of as the sociological or even the anthropological, or uh, for women, it was often about education. They would make observations of Native peoples, for example. You know, say, they see a group of Native American women and say, oh, well, they kind of look happy in the woods or something like that. And the other thing that women did, right, is often brought children with them and framed their their travel as educational, right? That what they were doing was, was teaching children about the world and that as a result, what they were doing was not silly and superficial, but was meaningful,
0: It's interesting. So as the tourism industry matures and grows and we get into the turn of the 20th century, people are still deriding mere tourists.
1: I think that's true because I realized this when I was working on this book and I was living in New York and I would travel around from coffee shop to coffee shop. And one coffee shop I was at had a little sticker on the window that said, not for tourists, which jumped right out at me because I was trying to understand tourists. So I sat down and I researched what this was, and it turns out it was was a reference to a guidebook called Not for Tourists, published in the early 2000s. And it struck me that this is a, a really weird thing, right, that here's a tourist guidebook that's called Not for Tourists. It was in that moment that I realized that being a traveler is all about distinguishing yourself from a tourist. So what that allowed me to see is that this is actually a through line from this period I'm talking about in the 1820s, 30s, and 40s, all the way up to our present day. So I think it, it, you think even today about something like Lonely Planet, which is you know, a guidebook that you literally walk into Barnes and & Noble and purchase before you go somewhere. But then what it purports to tell you is how to not be a tourist when you get there. And that what that says to me is that people are still really grasping to make travel experiences authentic.
0: Do you ever succumb to this yourself? Do you ever think as you're traveling... That, that you have to be a little bit more thoughtful about it instead of simply crashing on the beach and thinking the waves are great.
1: Oh, of course, right? Because everybody does. <laughs> of course I do, right? I'm always, when I go places, I, you know, I want to think that I'm having some real authentic experience of the place that I'm going to. Um, but what writing this book has taught me is that, is that I am playing a game with myself in my head when I do that.
0: And you're in good company.
1: Well, yeah, me and everybody else in the world, yeah.
2: <laughs> I've waited around and waited around this old town too long. Summer's almost gone,
3: yes, winter's coming on. I've waited around and played around this old town too long, and I feel like I've got to travel
0: right on. Will McIntosh is a professor of history at the University of Mary Washington and the author of Selling the Sites, The Invention of the Tourist in American Culture. Coming up next, that not-so-fresh country air. There's a startling new report from the National Parks Conservation Association that shows out of 417 national parks, 401 suffer from air pollution. Chris Zahowski is a professor of park, recreation, and tourism studies at Old Dominion University. He joins me to talk about where the pollution is coming from and efforts underway to curb it. Chris, how big of a problem is air pollution in national parks and state parks?
3: Air pollution is one of the many emerging challenges that national parks and state parks face.
0: But is the pollution any worse in the nation's parks than it is outside the nation's parks?
3: Yeah, that's an interesting question. There was a a recent study where 33 national parks were uh, analyzed for their ozone values, and they were compared to the 20 largest uh, metropolitan areas in in the United States. And in some cases, there wasn't a significant difference between Those 33 parks and the 20 major U.S. cities, not all pollution stays localized. So we can see signals from pollutants over in in China um, from industrial development on the Asian continent in our parks and protected areas here in the United States.
0: How much of the pollution the national parks all across the country are experiencing is coming from the visitors themselves
3: it's easy to assume that the visitors are causing most of the problems. More largely, it's industry, it's uh, wildfire events that are becoming more common, that are spreading pollutants over greater scales. Uh, visitors definitely have a role to play in reducing the pollution that's generated through their travel, but it's definitely a bigger problem than just the Griswolds driving their you know family automobile to the national parks on their uh, summer vacation.
0: So how could I be to blame if I'm visiting? Visiting the Grand Canyon, let's say. where? How am I bringing air pollution into the Grand Canyon?
3: Sure. So just the, the act of flying a plane on a summer vacation, I just flew to Idaho for my summer vacation and I rafted a river. The travel that took me to Idaho generates a variety of different pollutants. Then there's the driving to specific places. So for example, uh, Zion National Park in Zion Canyon, There's steep sandstone canyon walls that people are going to climb. They're going to hike up to the edges of and look out over. Um, But those canyon walls trap pollutants. So just by driving a car in Zion Canyon, they'd end up actually respiring the same things that they're creating through their travel. So
0: It's so interesting you mentioned the airplane flights. Were you as outraged as some people that a bunch of Hollywood celebrities and other stars and luminaries were lambasted a couple of weeks ago for flying to the climate summit in Europe in private jets.
3: Yeah, it's, it's a much bigger problem than, you know, our individual flights. I think we need to be conscious of our travel, but we really have larger policy needs that go far beyond the individual travel patterns of a group of celebrities or of myself flying to a vacation in Idaho.
0: Do you think we should limit the number of visitors who can come to the national parks?
3: That's sort of at the the crux of our challenges. You know, this is our public land. And the challenge is, as more and more folks both within our country and outside of our country are flocking to these places— Do we want to feel like we're in Times Square when we're gazing out over the Grand Canyon? Um, These are kind of hard choices we need to make uh, as we think about, you know, our public lands and and how we want to use them and what kind of experiences we want out of them. And, you know, we have 800 billion visits to protected areas in a year worldwide. And if we disperse those visits over a larger area, I think people would be happier. Our impacts on those places would be fewer and uh, we'd be doing justice to, I think, some of the values that we profess as a society to care about these places.
0: Do you think visitors are noticing bad air quality in parks, or is that just something that researchers have discovered?
3: You know, it depends. I was studying in, in Utah, and the mountainous terrain in Utah has the, the ability to trap pollution under what are known as inversions. And so folks out in those areas are very familiar with uh, inversions, with particulate matter, with some of the air quality lingo. Uh, we, we have a variety of studies that show that people will leave these mountainous environments where pollution is trapped to escape to places where there isn't pollution. In other situations, folks, if they can't see it, they oftentimes miss it. Uh, some of the the strategies that the parks are using don't necessarily remove the broader crowding challenges. So Zion National Park is a great example of this. Um, back in the early 2000s, they uh, banned, effectively banned, personal automobiles and instituted a mandatory shuttle. But Zion's seen this incredible growth in visitation as the rest of our uh, national parks have. And so the shuttle system that was built for the early 2000s is struggling to meet the needs of today's visitors. So I, I totally agree with you that that alternative transit services are, are one of the, the big solutions. But depending on the unit and depending on growth in visitation, other strategies, dispersing folks to different units or to restrict the number of people who can access these, these places to try to alleviate air quality concerns, but also provide the desired experience.
0: Have you personally ever experienced a sort of pollution, experienced pollution that really impeded the quality of your visit at one of these parks?
3: Absolutely. I I have a few different examples. We were on a river trip in Bears Ears and there was was an oil spill upriver. So there was actually a boom that was placed in front of the the put-in where we were actually going to launch our seven-day river trip from. And they cleaned up most of the, the pollution from that spill, uh, but, you know, we could smell it and we could see it in the water. And, and that definitely uh, definitely affected me. It affected everyone else on the trip, both emotionally but also physically. And that's part of the reason that I I do this work and I'm passionate about the work I'm, I'm doing because I, I think we have a long way to go to reduce the impacts that, that we're seeing in these special places. I was visiting—actually, I was visiting a friend in Salt Lake— I went up uh, with him skiing at Alta Ski Area, which is one of the kind of fabled ski resorts in, in Utah and, and in the West and in the world. And coming down from Alta, you know, it was a sunny, beautiful day. The snow was was gorgeous and the cloud, there were hardly a cloud in the sky. And, and then I dropped down below what they call the inversion layer, which is a layer of clouds. So we were above the clouds when we were skiing and I dropped down below it into the Salt Lake Valley, where the city is, and everything turned gray. Um, I could feel, kind of smell the diesel. Um, I could feel my chest getting tight. Um, But it definitely changed my trajectory in terms of the work that I do. So uh, air quality became something really important to me, trying to understand how that affected not only me, but other folks um, who live in places like Salt Lake. I'm a big fan of environmental literature and Terry Tempest Williams, who's kind of a famous conservationist and environmental writer. She says parks are breathing places in a time when we all are trying to catch our breath. And the reality is they're not always. The air that we breathe outside of these parks is sometimes the same as what we're breathing inside them. And I think the the solutions definitely also need to come from outside the parks themselves. We need to get active in trying to change some of our own behaviors, but more broadly change our consumption of fossil fuels as a society and the energy sources that we're using.
0: Chris Zahowski, thank you for talking with me on With Good Reason.
3: Thank you so much. I've really appreciated it.
0: Chris Zahowski is a professor of park recreation and tourism studies at Old Dominion University. Up next, rural areas with natural beauty are using that nature to lure tourist dollars. More and more small towns are creating public artworks or popular foodie trails as ways to enrich their communities through tourism. Nancy McGee has particular expertise in rural tourism, and she's a professor of hospitality and tourism management at Virginia Tech. Nancy, in the last few decades, rural areas across the country have come up with all kinds of new strategies to woo tourists. What are some examples where there wasn't a thriving tourism place, but now they've been able to attract outsiders.
4: Well, I think one example is in Western North Carolina, and that's the area surrounding Asheville and in the mountains. It's a beautiful part of North Carolina. And a group known as Handmade in America, which is spearheaded by the amazing and wonderful Becky Anderson, developed a process that communities could use. And it starts with just small projects. People look around, get together as a community and say, well what are some what's some low hanging fruit? What are some things that we could do that could really make a difference? For example, a mural that maybe was fabulous in years gone by but has gotten a little bit faded or shaggy. And so let's get together and, and spruce it up. Or a town center that has a, a small park that maybe has a gazebo that's seen better days or doesn't have any structure at all. And so these are the things that a community can come around together in a quick way, make a change happen, and it's a seed that plants and starts to really grow from there because pretty soon you have seven, eight, nine communities that are doing the same thing, it gets attention. It gets attention of the the newspapers and the media, and then soon tourists are going, well, this sounds like a really interesting place to go. And before you know it, you've got a region, not just one community, but a region that's doing some amazing things.
0: Does it seem to be working? Are dollars coming in? Yes, I
4: mean, yes. I mean, I think because there's a critical mass, because communities recognize that the community next door is not the competition, they're the partner, Because as tourists, when we look around, we don't say, oh, I'm going to go to this tiny town that's six hours away. You say, oh, I want to go to this region or this area because I hear there are several spaces that offer a lot of really exciting things. I could be an adventure traveler and go on a zip line in one community. I can visit a tremendous museum somewhere else, go to a a music festival at that third community. And so when, when communities realize that, that's when they're most successful.
0: It always seems like there's a bit of a catch-22 where towns want tourism to bring in money. But to bring in the tourists, you have to have the money in the first place to make your town a fun place to visit. Are there places that can start small and get around that paradox?
4: I think the, the handmade in America example in western North Carolina sort of one of the foundational pieces of it is this idea that you begin with a project that's got low capital investment and something that can be accomplished quickly. I also think that one advantage with rural tourism development is the opportunity to band together with other small communities and combine your resources, assets that you have, the natural capital, if you have national parks or national forests that are already in existence, that you really just need to find a way to Showcase and to uh, kind of get the word out. There are a lot of opportunities for people to be able to begin small and build from there. What about
0: communities that have just been hard hit economically, where all the industry dried up and people really can't find jobs? Those are the ones that you you feel like they need the tourism dollars the most, and yet are probably least able to come up with a plan and the money to bring something
4: in. I think one of the huge advantages those sorts of communities have is they're not afraid of hard work. <laughs> they're they're familiar, very familiar with hard work. And I believe the beauty of tourism development in a lot of ways, it's just people getting together who are willing and able to work toward the promotion of things that are there and then to build on that. So I think of of Fayetteville, West Virginia as a great example where they looked around and said, we have this gorgeous river. We have this incredible bridge that is unlike any in the United States. And so we have these basic resources. Where can we go from here? And we have that mix of folks who've, who've lived there for generations and understand and appreciate the natural resources with newcomers who come in with what some might consider initially a crazy idea. Well, I want to, you know, I want to form a rafting company. And, you know, 30 years later, you have this thriving, gorgeous community with, you know, wonderful restaurant options, great natural resources, as well as cultural resources. So I think the hard work that's at the base of a lot of these rural communities is 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 point number one in terms of any kind of rural tourism development.
0: What about tourism on rural, tribal lands across America? Is there a trend to develop tourism there, and is that showing promise?
4: Absolutely, but there are several examples, but one great example that I've seen amongst Native communities is the Acoma Pueblo in New Mexico. It's about 60 miles west of of Albuquerque and what they have done is is really maintained that control through their tribal council they oversee everything from the guided tours the cultural exhibitions the artifacts the sale of of their unique pottery but there's also a business board of folks that it's a mix of both members of the tribe and others who come together and present from time to time okay here's our strategy here's what we're looking at next to the tribal council, and they ultimately have control. To me, it's a great example. It's a beautiful place. Um, it's a it's a very sacred place, and they've they've been able to be successful both in terms of the way in which they promote tourism, but also they've been business-savvy and business-smart in diversifying. They have a restaurant, for example, that, that serves a common food, but it also serves New Mexican fare and American food. They also have a variety of lodging opportunities. You could stay in a campground or an RV, or you can stay in a more traditional hotel. They do these things in a way that both honors The tribe honors the Pueblo, but also is business savvy. They've, again, found that sweet spot. What about the tourists
0: themselves? Who do you find is hitting the road, heading toward these rural areas for vacations, sightseeing, and just nourishing the soul? Young? City? Rural?
4: (laughs) It's kind of all of the above, and and I would throw international in there as well. I'm always amazed at the number of times that I'm at a conference in Europe or in Asia, and when I say I'm from Southwest Virginia, they either, oh, I've always wanted to be on the Appalachian Trail or the Blue Ridge Parkway. They know about these places halfway around the world.
0: Is there a place locally that you've gone recently that you would highly recommend?
4: (laughs) Me locally? And, you know, it's a great thing that you bring up because one of the things we talk about in rural tourism development is so often those of us who live in communities don't take advantage of these amazing things that are right in our backyard. And one thing that I have never done, and I finally did this summer, was kayak on the James River. That's just history. That's, there's so much there. And, and to go along the water and to imagine what it would have been like to have been an American Indian hundreds of years ago on that same body of water and to see the great blue herons, it's just really a magical experience that's natural, but it's also cultural. So that's something that, that I've done recently.
0: Nancy, I've done the same thing and had those same <laughs> thoughts. I totally know. <laughs> Thanks so much.
4: You're welcome. It's been my pleasure.
0: Nancy McGee is a Professor of Hospitality and Tourism Management at Virginia Tech. This is With Good Reason, we'll be right back. Welcome back to With Good Reason from Virginia Humanities. My
2: name is Professor Guy Gadbois, Medieval Castle Authority from Marseille. Tell me, do you have a rhym? I do not know what a rhum is.
0: That's Peter Sellers and his exaggerated French accent in the classic comedy The Pink Panther.
2: Ah, a rhum. That is what I have been saying, you idiot. Rhum.
0: Accents can make us laugh, but they're not just fodder for comedians. Rightfully or wrongfully, we use accents to identify people as either insiders or outsiders. Our next guest today is Steven Weinberger, professor of linguistics at George Mason University. Steven's developed the Speech Accent Archive, a website that has hundreds of examples of people all over the world reading the same paragraph in English.
2: So um, when we listen to people, we get an immediate impression of them. We, we compute their sounds, and we make judgments about them. Determine gender, we determine age. We somehow compute whether or not the person we're listening to comes from our community or not. And um, that's all automatic behavior. Every human can do that. Now, what's not automatic is that we make these judgments about somebody based on their speech. So if we listen to someone from Kentucky, we have a certain impression of them. If we listen from, to someone from Brooklyn, New York, we have a certain impression of them.
0: So what goes into an accent? What part of a word? Is it consonants or vowels? Is it cadence?
2: Well, it's everything. Um, it's vowels, it's consonants. Um, its intonation, its tone, its stress patterns. One marker for, let's say, um, a Pittsburgh accent or a Western Pennsylvania accent would be how speakers um, use the owl vowel in "out." One way to speak like a Pittsburgher is to turn that owl into an ah, something like this, instead of saying Allegheny County. Uh, my fellow Pittsburghers might say something like Allegheny County. Huh. You, s- you notice I didn't even say the T sound in county. That's part of most of American English, North American English. We turn our T's and D's in certain instances into a less than a D sound. We call it a, a flap sound, where the tongue tip touches the ridge, the alveolar ridge of the mouth, very quickly. So let me give you an example. Um, North American speakers would say the word water like this, water. Yeah. Here it's not, not a T. But British English speakers don't say water. They say water. They use a full T sound.
0: How do we acquire our accents? Do we get them from our parents or from our peers or our communities?
2: We get them from our peers, uh, most linguists believe. Somewhere between ages 2 and 5, we develop our language, our native language. And uh, we typically get it from our playmates. If we took the position that we got our accents from our parents, then we'd all speak like immigrants. If you just find a newly located immigrant family where the children are young, it's always the case that the children speak a less accented English than the parents. Parents and adults, on the other hand, find it very difficult to completely lose their native accent.
0: Are you aware of techniques for teachers that make this, um, that at least get us closer to that goal than otherwise?
2: Certainly, it's possible to get non native speakers to a higher proficiency level. And there are certain techniques. Let me give you an example. For French speakers learning English, French doesn't have the kind of P sound that English has when it begins a word. So if we say the word like pit, Um, If I say it close to the microphone, you can actually hear the little puff of air come out after the P. Listen, pit.
0: The explosive.
2: The explosive P. And English does that. Now, French is a little different among many other languages. They don't have that puff of air. So a French speaker, when they try to say pit, they'll say it something like bit or something like that. It sounds Uh like a B to us. Yes. Because we don't have such a sound that begins a word.
0: Tell me about your online speech accent archive. I've been there. It's wonderful.
2: Oh, thank you. Um, Well, it's um, Internet Archive, and everyone is reading the same paragraph in English, so you can compare.
0: And what is the paragraph?
2: Well, it sounds like this. Please call Stella. Ask her to bring these things with her from the store. Six spoons of fresh snow peas, five thick slabs of blue cheese, and maybe a snack for her brother Bob.
0: <laughs> How did you come up with that paragraph?
2: Well, uh, when we started the archive in 1999, we had to pretty much ensure that most of the sounds in English were represented in this paragraph. We have difficult consonant clusters. We have a, a cluster like ST and Stella. You get a lot of speakers who say things like Estella or Sitella whose native languages don't have consonant clusters.
0: Oh, I didn't realize that.
2: Oh, yes. Here's one, for example. Here's a Sicilian gentleman. Um, This particular individual was born in, in Sicily. He had been living in America, speaking English every day for 54 years. And here's what he sounds like.
4: Please call Stella. Ask her to bring those things with her from the store six spoons of fresh snow peas, five thick slab of blue cheese, and maybe a snack for her brother, Bob.
2: Now, uh, when you listen to this fellow, you get an impression that, that he's adding little vowels at the ends of his words. It's because Sicilian and Italian simply don't have final consonants like English has. So in order for him to pronounce those final consonants, he has to insert a little vowel in there. I can give you an example of um, an Arabic speaker. One thing to note about Native Arabic is that they don't have a P sound. So she's going to have to substitute something for the P sound in please. So listen how she does it.
0: Please call Stella. Ask her to bring these things with her from... The store.
2: Do you hear how she said her please? She used a B. Yeah, that's right. That's a traditional way of speaking a kind of Arabic English, you substituting a B for a P.
0: Do you also have examples of um, Brooklyn or Boston accents and maybe Deep South accents?
2: Oh, yeah. I'll give you one of my favorite Brooklyn accents. This will give you an example of how we judge accents. Um, let's listen to this Brooklyn speaker.
4: Please call Stella. Ask her to bring those things with her from the store. Six spoons of fresh snow peas, five thick slabs of blue cheese, and maybe a snack for her brother, Bob.
2: I'm sure people would make judgments about her, but um, people might be startled to learn that she is a Ph.D. and a professor of um, French at a major university.
0: Right. And now, conversely, let's go very deep south.
2: Yeah, you know, let's see what this uh Mississippi speaker would sound like from Macon, Mississippi.
5: Please call Stella. Ask her to
2: bring
3: these things with her from the store. Six spoons of fresh snow peas. Five thick slabs of blue cheese, and maybe a snack for her brother
4: Bob.
0: There you go. See, I think that's very beautiful. <laughs> yes. Yeah. <laughs> You say it's so hard for us to learn to speak like native speakers, but it seems some people make that switch successfully. I'm thinking of actors in the film industry who are asked to adopt foreign accents.:
2: Oh yeah. um I'm sure these actors sound perfectly legitimate to speakers and listeners who don't who aren't native. Now, there are um voice characterizations that are quite good. Mel Blanc has done quite a good job with the Looney Tunes, and he does a really great Pepe Le Pew, and he's doing all the right things. Let's let you listen to Pepe Le Pew.
0: Ah, my little darling, it is love at first sight, is it not? No? Uh, Do not come with me to the Casbah. We shall make beautiful music together right here.
2: Well, um, you (laughs) notice that uh, Mel Blanc knew all the tricks for t- speaking like a French speaker of English. Let me just compare that to a real French speaker. Please call Stella. Ask her to bring these things with her from the store. Six spoons of French snow peas, five thick slabs of blue cheese, and maybe a snare for her brother Bob. You notice the kinds of things <laughs> that this French speaker was doing with his THs. Exactly what Mel Blanc was doing with his THs.
0: Well, Steve Weinberger, thank you so much for sharing your understanding of accents and English as a second language with me today and with good reason.
2: You're quite welcome.
1: you got to accentuate the positive, eat limb, it the negative and latch on to the affirmative. Don't mess with Mr. In-Between.
0: Steven Weinberger is a professor of linguistics at George Mason University. Coming up next, Chaucer's accent.
1: A liable to walk upon the scene to illustrate my last remark.
0: If you're of a certain age, you may remember having to wade through Chaucer's Canterbury Tales in high school or college. It's written in early English, and to many of us it seems impenetrable with its strange pronunciation and incomprehensible phrases. Our next guest says actually the best way to approach Chaucer is to read it out loud and hear the musicality of the words. Alan Barragona is a professor of English at James Madison University and a real Chaucer fan.
5: He had a tremendous range. Um, he could write religious verse, he could write Love poetry, he could write social satire. He had a great sense of characterization, was willing to write about every class in the very class-ridden culture of England.
0: Give me a line or two from his best romantic poetry.
5: A poem that starts out as one of his best romantic poems but then very gradually shifts into something completely different is something called Tod Rosamunda. We have no idea who Rosamunda was. Or even if she existed. But it starts out in a very standard French romantic mode. It exaggerates uh, the the qualities of the woman, it elevates her, it puts her up on a pedestal in a very sweet way. It goes like this: Madama, ye bane of all beoti shrina, as far as cercled is the mapa munda. My lady, you are the shrine of all beauty, as far as the map of the world is circled round. For as the crystal glorious ye shine, and like a ruby bane your cheek is runda. You shine like the glorious crystal, or like the crystal you shine gloriously, and your round cheeks are like a ruby. Therewith ye bane so merry and so jocunda. In this way you are so merry and so jolly. That at a revel, Juan, that he say you dance, it is an ointment unto me wound, though to me ne do no dallianza. So at a party, at a revel, whenever I see you dance, it's an ointment to my wound, even though you do me no dalliance, you pay no attention to me. And one of the great things about Chaucer is he's, as Shakespeare later, um, he's able to talk about the deep and genuine feelings, especially in, in what's really his masterwork, *Chorlus* and Crusida, but at the same time be aware that love can make you crazy.
0: So why do you think young Americans in college and high school now should study Chaucer? Oh,
5: There, there are several reasons that I think are most important right now. Chaucer still is considered, and rightly so, the the kind of headwaters of the English literary tradition, and uh, even in America, our cultural traditions still are rooted in the English tradition. So if we want to understand American culture, we also have to understand English culture, and Chaucer really is the beginning of that. Most of the rest of the world, in many ways, has more in common with medieval Europe than it does with modern Europe and America. And, you know, if you want to understand the Middle East, or even if you want to understand, you know, Northern Ireland, <laughs> uh, it helps to understand about you know, tribal warfare in Beowulf, where it helps to understand the idea of how important religion was, even in what looks like a kind of a secular culture in Chaucer's time, the idea of a theocracy. You know, Americans find the idea of a theocracy very alien, but in fact, most of the rest of the world think that is kind of a natural thing. And in fact, that's how they felt in Europe in the Middle Ages. These are our ancestors. So I think understanding our ancestors is a way to understand the rest of the world that did not go through the renaissance of, of secular humanism. Chaucer in very m- many ways is an orthodox Christian at the same time that he can do things that most you know, Southern Baptists today would be offended by, but he wouldn't have seen a contradiction there. What sorts of and, things
0: could he do that would offend a Baptist?
5: Oh, oh, he tells dirty jokes all the time. He um, focuses on stories that would not be suitable for mixed company today. But that's because of the Victorian era, really, in the 14th century. Um, They didn't see a contradiction between being devout religiously and being orthodox, and at the same time having a good laugh over something sexual. Just how bawdy could he be? Chaucer could be very bawdy. Um, <laughs> by by modern standards, by the standards of his own time, he's actually pretty mild. If you look at uh, the French fablios that were the models for some of his stories, they are Incredibly raunchy, and some of them are really disgusting. Raunchy and, and, hard to read. and disgusting. Oh, they're, they're, they really are. <laughs> the Lenny uh, Bruces of their time. Oh, much worse than anything <laughs> Lenny Bruce ever talked about. I really can't even describe some of the plots to you on public radio or any radio. You know, maybe Howard <laughs> Stern. And Chaucer took this kind of low form and he turned it into something that a more sophisticated audience actually could appreciate. and Partly is because he toned down, not so much the sex, but the violence. Um, <laughs> right. But he could, you know, if you, if you know, everybody knows something about the Miller's Tale from high school. You've got uh, a, a woman sticking her behind out the window and, and getting it kissed. Um, Chaucer loved fart jokes, um, which my students really enjoy finding out that you can have fart jokes that, um, that can make great literature.
0: Why have countless generations of students been asked to learn, if nothing else about Chaucer, Mm -hmm. how to recite the general prologue to the Canterbury Tales?
5: Poets think in terms of craft, and their craft is their sound. They're writing verbal music. And you can't really appreciate Chaucer on the page unless you hear it any more than you can appreciate Beethoven by looking at the notes on the page. This is a performance art. And I think the opening lines of the Canterbury Tales are a perfect example of that. Would you like to go over them? Mm-hmm. Um,
0: I can only remember those first two lines. One that I with a sota, the drood of matter, che per se rota.
5: That's not so bad.
0: Uh, <laughs> not right, but it's yeah. not so bad. <laughs> Rats.
5: <laughs> if, you, if you think about it, this is written in what an old professor of mine used to call performance meter, And you can modulate it so much that it becomes conversational. It sounds like speech. The other thing that he does is to make fantastic use of his vowels, especially his long vowels and also long consonant sounds. Uh, Sweet, we say, is a long vowel and sweat is a short vowel. But I'm not holding the word sweet any longer than I hold the word sweat. And we don't go sweet. We go sweet. But in Chaucer, you do both. You hold them longer. Swayte. And sometimes this can actually make a difference in meaning. In Old English, for example, the word sad means sad. But sad means satisfied, which is very different. And it sounds like this. Juan that April, with his sure sort, The drucht of March. Hath pierced to the rota, And bathed every vine in switch liqueur, Of which vertu engendered is the floor. Juan Zephyrus ache with his sweeter breath, In spirit hath in every halt and heath the tender croppus, And the youngest sunna hath in the ram his half coursi runna, And smaller foolis makin melodia that sleep and all the nicht with open ear, so pricketh him nature in hir couragees, than a longen folk, to go on pilgrimages. It's like butter in your mouth. It is. Can, That's beautifully uh, red. Thank you very much. Yeah. Uh, I work at that. <laughs> um, but but
0: you c- But how do you know to make it sound that way? How do we know he said the drut? We Not know it, you're it,
5: it, it's actually, there's a science to this. Um, remember that we're talking about British English here, and British English doesn't sound like American English. Um, I had a the professor who taught me to do this, in fact, at one point, stared at me very hard after I'd read a passage once, and he was very British, very plummy accent. And he said, your pronunciation is perfect, but you sound foreign. <laughs> I, yeah, that was fine. That, yeah. was a, you know, that was a compliment just to hear that my pronunciation was okay. But if you look at, at different dialects and, and also look at rhymes and, and uh, what seems to be the meter of the, the different lines, you can, in fact, reconstruct with a, a fair degree of certainty the pronunciation from Old English and Middle English and, and Early Modern English. And Aside from giving you that sense of the moment of springtime and how this particular character feels about that, is we begin to learn something about this character. And a few lines later, he tells us that he's going on pilgrimage with full devout coraja, with a completely devout heart. But the very next thing he talks about is the tabard inn and how comfortable it is, how big the rooms are, how good the food is. So even from the very beginning, we get the sense that the narrator here is uh, it's kind of a sensualist, He's a worldly person. He says he has a devout heart, and all of the, um, the symbolism of the spring certainly has religious value, but what he feels about spring is how good it feels, how comfortable it is. And then this becomes a part of his character for the rest of the general prologue, as he describes all these other not very devout, very secular Characters that are on the pilgrimage with him.
0: So is Chaucer sort of mocking gentility and hypocrisy? He's that? certainly
5: mocking hypocrisy and, and he's, he mocks false false gentility. He believes in real gentility.
0: Mm-hmm.
5: Um, uh, there's controversy about the, the knicht, the knight, and Wait a whether minute. or not. the knight
0: is pronounced you know, knicht. That sounds like something out of Monty Python. It does,
5: and, and um, <laughs> knits
0: that say knish.
5: That's right. And T- <laughs> Terry Jones studied medieval literature and history at, uh, at Cambridge, and he, he knows it pretty well. He's actually published on Chaucer, and, and I'm, I'm sure, even though it was John Cleese who may, said um, that he got that from Terry Jones. And so what what is the pronounced. actual
0: line? Knights who say "ni." Nee. Yes,
5: the knights <laughs> <the>, <laughs> who say nee. um, But yeah, it's the.
0: Uh, I'm a great fan.
5: It's. I- I'll tell you something. Monty Python and the Holy Grail is every Arthurian scholar's favorite Arthur movie. Why? Because, aside from the fact that it's extraordinarily funny, of course, Terry Jones, who wrote the script, really knows something about medieval literature. He knows something about the Arthurian tradition. It's kind of like what I said earlier about Chaucer. You have to master something before you can parody it well. And um, Monty Python really knew the Arthur story well enough to make the kind of jokes that they make. And that's what we appreciate.
0: Well, Alan Barragona, thank you for sharing your insights on Chaucer with me today and with good reason.
5: Well, I enjoyed it very much. Gros merci, as Chaucer would say. Great thanks. (laughs) And also maybe have mercy.
0: Alan Barragona is a professor of English at James Madison University. Major support for With Good Reason is provided by the law firm of McGuire Woods and by the University of Virginia Health System, connecting doctors and patients through telemedicine to deliver high-quality care throughout Virginia, the U.S., and the world. uvahealth.com With Good Reason is produced in Charlottesville by Virginia Humanities, our production team is Allison Quantz, Elliot Majerzik, and Cass Adair. Jeannie Palin handles listener services. I'm Sarah McConnell. Thanks for listening.